leadership is the, the toughest gig you'll ever have, but it's the, it'll give you the biggest buzz you've ever had too when, when, it's, when it's working well. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Nick Chan served as an artilleryman in the Australian Army, including a tour of Vietnam in 1968-69. After rising to the rank of brigadier, he left the Army in 1985 to work in leadership training and human resources in the private sector. His new book, Leadership Secrets of the Australian Army, is about how the military trains leaders and how each of us can be better leaders. Nick, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure. So what drew you to the military as a child? Ah, I've been asking myself this question uh, quite a lot lately because I've been listening to your podcast about the advice I'd give to my, my younger self. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's, it was fundamentally because I grew up in an environment where I didn't know anything else. Hmm. Uh, my father was in the Air Force and I was a sort of service brat. I sort of very rarely lived in a civilian environment, went from one service base to another, one small school to another, and I never really knew anything else. And mm. um, it was a great pity, actually, because it was in an era, this was sort of in the 1950s, when uh, Australia was just beginning to, to bloom forth and um, all sorts of interesting things were, 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 were happening. But I was in... Um, I was on service bases. Uh, I respected my father enormously. I uh, was sort of uh, deeply um, aligned with the kind of uh, professional and personal values that he had, mm. and which the which our neighbours had. And I um, I never really thought of doing anything else except go into the go into the services. At first, it was the air force I wanted to do. Then um, early in my high school years, I found out I was colour blind and um, therefore I couldn't become air crew. Mm. My father, who wasn't air crew, said, Nick, do not join the Air Force unless you can be air crew because they, they're the ones who run the show. So I had to find an alternative. I, I thrashed around for a year or two and uh, then, um, then I chanced on the Army. I couldn't join the Navy either. That was my second choice. Um, changed on the army. I think it was in part because uh, um, at school, apart from girls, the only thing I was interested in was rugby. And in those <laughs> days, Duntroon was a rugby stronghold. Yes, yes. And the, the idea of uh, going to a place where uh, rugby was um, venerated as a, an activity um, was kind of appealing in the absence of anything else. So, so, I, so I did. So you were Duntroon class of 64. What was your uh, favourite part of your military service? Uh, mil- favourite part of the military service overall was just working with people, uh, wonderful people, uh, people who thought like I did in the sense that uh, they, were, they were dedicated to serving. Mm. And uh, we all had similar values, even if we didn't have sort of similar kinds of um, interests. And I, I mentioned that because... Uh, I I went to schools where if you were a clever boy, um, you were channelled into the maths and science area. So I never studied, never got the chance to study anything else and um, sort of uh, discover that I might have other interests. Mm. And I was always a pretty idle scholar. You know, I, I didn't enjoy studying... And I realised years later when I began to uh, to study vocational choice as part of my PhD that this was essentially because the kind of uh, uh, vocational interests that I have was sort of almost 180 degrees away from uh, um, science and engineering. But um, anyway, I, I struggled through. I sort of um, learned... Uh, I was excellent at exam technique 
and uh, that um, that took me through. I was in the, went to Duntroon in an era before the Defence Academy, so we there was academic study. And if you maintained in the science and engineering stream, if you maintained your, your grades, then the army would send you on to a university of your choice afterwards for a year or two to to finish it off and get your degree. And um, it was just I uh, sort of tuned in to the notion that uh, the future belonged to people with letters after their name. So given that they were giving me this chance, I'd, I'd better grasp it. So I did. Yes. Went to um, went to the University of Adelaide, um, played rugby. <laughs> played rugby for the regular, state. Regular theme of your, your uh, career. <laughs> uh, and um, struggled through uh, uh, electronic engineering degree and where um, the last, however, the last engineering I did was the last full stop on the last exam paper. <laughs> Gladly went, went then went to my regiment, trained for Vietnam, sort of immersed myself in the in the military arts. Uh, had a um, profoundly satisfying time, um, and then uh, and then then came back again. You talk about this uh, notion of egalitarian leadership within the Australian military, uh, which you describe as low-key low key and professional, uh, and you trace that back to uh, a range of Australian successes on the battlefield from mm. Tobruk and Kokoda and Kapiong, but also the way in which we were able to maintain peace in, uh, in East Timor. Uh, from your work with other militaries, how unique does the Australian military's approach to leadership strike you? These days, not particularly different. Mm. That's because everybody else has discovered the kind of um, magic formula that was thrust on the Australian Army just over 100 years ago when they were recruiting for the, the first AOF, had to recruit and sort of draw from a, a draw a lot of young men from a, a population which was already sort of uh, fiercely egalitarian and can do and mm. um, sort of strong mateship and um, and the sense of uh, that Jack was as good as his master, if not better, if not better. And uh, yes, one uh, military historian put it to me. I think it wasn't so much. Jack was as good as his master, as that Jack would allow that perhaps his master might be as good as Jack. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yes. So uh, the army, to its credit, um, uh, adapted its leadership style to this culture because it mm. you know, had to do recruit quickly and train quickly, so it didn't really have much choice. But in the process, it, it uh, discovered that um, it was had evolved... Uh, by necessity, uh, a leadership style that be became a, a huge, soft element of capability. Mm. And um, it really hasn't looked back since. And over the years, um, it's not that the... Uh, it's just that other um, defence forces have independently identified mm. the, the usefulness of um, inclusive leadership, this kind of... Um, Strong sense of delegation and and teamwork and uh, and the clever structured ways that the military deals with unstructured situations. Mm, mm. Um, uh, the um, all the time the Australian Army was going on doing this, but in a very Australian way, it didn't really understand the the great secrets of its uh, success. Yes, and it doesn't seem as though it's uniquely Australian in the sense that there's that uh, German notion of Auftrag's tactics, uh, the, the notion that what matters is the mission, not the means by which uh, it's, it's achieved, and that it's absolutely critical that members of a team know what they're aiming to do, not that they know all of the particular steps that you expect them to follow. Mm. Um, how well is that put into practice in uh, military settings and, and how well do you think it can work in civilian ones? Uh, yes and yes. Um, the military does this uh, not simply because it works but be, be, because there is no way of actually being success, successful in the contemporary operational uh, context. Uh, the, um, the situations are so... Uh, 
volatile, uncertain, complex and mm. ambiguous, that you've, you've got to uh, devolve responsibility down as far as you can and, um, and there it is dealt with by people who are trained and eager for the responsibilities that you're thrusting on them. And there are command and control, and I'll come back to that term in a moment, command and control techniques that uh, allow leaders at uh, successive levels of the hierarchy to actually keep their hands on it, adapt, uh, mm. exploit um, local uh, successes and, and so forth um, in, in a very nuanced and, uh, and clever way. Uh, so the army has this concept of command and control which is about 180 degrees away from what civilians understand as command and control. I sometimes hear sort of um, people talking about all oh, the military does command and control and by that they mean authoritarian. Right. But um, the military has this... Um, uh, it's, it's more authoritative than authoritarian in the sense that uh, the leadership is being exercised by people who know what they are doing uh, and care about the about the mission and the and the and the team before themselves. So that sort of an enormous uh, element of the kind of trust that 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 they're given. Um, but also that uh, because everybody, because they're trained to think about and work in those kinds of ways, it it does work well. And in each particular level. Uh, there's this element of sort of trust and openness which allows people at, at these sort of people at a particular level, if things are not not working, they don't hesitate to to let the boss know if yeah. um, if that's uh, appropriate so that the boss can make appropriate uh, adjustments. And at the same time, the boss is getting hopefully enough, Information flowing back for them to sort of monitor the situation and adjust if they if they need to. But it's much better to to leave the task to the people who are on the ground um, than it is to sort of closely control it because that particular strategy wouldn't work. Now, how well could it work? In well, um, in the in the civilian sphere. Remember the um, the phrase "management by objectives" it must be mm. what forty, fifty years old now. Yes, indeed. Well, it captures that that kind of thing. So, you know, if it uh, worked for Peters and Waterman, it can work for anybody. Yes, I like to say to staff: the more I can see your outputs, the less I want to be micromanaging your inputs. Mm. Uh, the less I want to be concerned about when you're arriving at the office or what you're working on at any particular minute. If we can all agree on what we're aiming to get done, then uh, uh, we don't need, to, don't need to sweat about how we get there. And the other really powerful thing about that is that to the extent to which you engage people in, in work that they, they know is important mm. uh, and where they can use their skills and where you can sort of coach them in the skills and they're probably sort of been selected on the base, somewhat on the basis of those skills in the, in the first place, where you can give them uh, feedback on on how they're going and all those sorts of um, uh, important psychological work design elements that uh, that good leaders do. The more that happens, you know, the the more they you know work ceases to become um, mm. work. Yes. Now you talk about. Uh, you, you the idea of leadership in your book is uh, three three R's, representing the behaviours people expect of a leader, relating to team members and running the team so it's productive and rewarding. Uh, I thought perhaps we could go through each of those in, in turn. Um, in terms of representing the behaviours people expect of a leader, uh, one of the things you talk about as being particularly important in uh, military leadership is subordinating the self. Um, can you talk a bit about the importance of philosophies like mission, then team, then me, or officers mm. eat last? Yeah. Well, it's it's fundamental, really. Uh, always has been in any leadership context, but especially um, in the Australian context, you know, as it was then, uh, and um, and still is that uh, sense that um, you are there to. It's now been formalised in a, a strand of leadership thinking called servant leadership, where the the concept is um, 
a leader exists in order to to make it possible for team members to succeed, mm. and therefore to uh, thus to achieve uh, the mission. Um, in the military, it's sort of a little more hierarchical than that. In the the sense of uh, uh, the leader will usually identify the uh, objective and perhaps um, well will often have some um, uh, input into. Um, into how that is to be achieved and how it is to be measured and what what should happen next and so forth. But uh, um, the other element of that, that's sort of authoritative and somewhat uh, directive, but the other element of uh, servant leadership that the military does particularly well is what I call the leader as catalyst, mm. um, which is that the, the leader is an enabler rather than a director and you... You arrange things so that the so the team can uh, succeed. Now, look, uh, the um, one is not denying. In fact, it would be stupid not to that a lot of um, military tasks occur in situations of extreme risk and and danger and and crisis, where um, you haven't got time to sort of uh, delegate and uh, put it out to, out to people and let them sort of explore the... the you know, you've got to be prepared for that. The team's got to be prepared for that and usually it is the leader making mm. making decisions uh, and, um, and uh, expecting that uh, people will carry out these decisions without uh, any question. And one of the... Uh, and that's accepted... But one of the clever things that uh, happens in good leadership uh, is that um, uh, effective leadership depends very much on building the kind of leadership capital, mm. or trust, mm. um, credit, um, well in advance that will allow you to to say to a, to a soldier, um, right, get up and advance into that machine gun fire, um, and that that soldier will will tend to do it. You know, I'm talking about an extreme situation here, but uh, they will they will do it because because they trust you. Mm. You know, mm. the boss the boss knows what he or she is doing. Uh, the boss has our interests at heart. Um, uh, I wouldn't be getting this order unless it was important for the team and for the and for the mission. And I really care about that because I really care about this team being successful. You, they they do it without without question. How do you teach those sorts of servant leadership officers eat last kind of kind of skills? You describe in the book uh, as someone who's referred to as uh, an officer who's referred to by his men, I think, as doggo. His tongue's always hanging hanging out when he gets to the uh, to the mess hall. Clearly, somebody who didn't learn the, the the lessons that he was to be the last to the food rather than the first. Yes. Um, to what extent is those sorts of things innate versus taught? Well, that's the natural way to people to, to sort of do things. They. Uh, um think about themselves and who, who can blame them because it's kind of a human nature. So um, for those who are, for those, ex so people who sort of put their hands up to be officers tend to already be sort of thinking along the right, the sort of servant leadership lines. Uh, they, um, they are serving to serve and then they need to be sort of nudged along during their socialisation so that they will be, um, it will be demonstrated to them, both by example and historical precedent and logic uh, and practice, the utility of practicing a policy where they they always eat last, and uh, where they, um, you know, if the if the soldiers are out there. Sweating in the hot sun, doing some physical task, you get out there and roll, roll your sleeves up and and sweat with them. Uh, and um, regardless of the short term cost, it has uh, enormous value in the long in the mm. longer term, mm. especially when that's an institutional value. So that virtually all your peers, your fellow officers, are doing the same thing. Yes. Um, the uh, the people at the uh, at the, at, the, at the team level, sort of inherently trust those who are in charge, quote unquote, 
to, uh, to, uh, to do the right thing so that even when the boss doesn't come out of his office, they, they don't begrudge it mm. unless he's like that particular dog-dog fellow, poor bugger, um, who sort of um, bucked those, those, those particular norms. Mm. Now, in, in his case, um, I think probably it was a bit unfortunate because along the line... Um, he didn't get sort of subjected to the principle of by his superiors of that uh, something that um, uh, General David Morrison is uh, is famous for saying um, the standard you walk past is the standard you 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 set. Um, that's long been uh, a saying in the in the military. David was simply enunciating something that he grew up with, that his father grew up with, mm. and. Uh, in that particular case, uh, that unfortunate dog dog officer, his um, his commanding officer should have, or indeed his regimental sergeant major should have taken him aside and said, "Hang on a minute, don't do that," for the following reasons. Another aspect of representing the behaviours people expect in a leader is calmness in a crisis, and uh, the military throws uh, some of the toughest crises at its leaders. How do you teach someone not to be, as you put it, set back by setbacks? Yeah, well, it's it's tough. So you've got you basically they start very early at uh, when they're doing it over at Duntroon, and these are young men and women in their in their early twenties. They're thrust into situations where it will be stressful and and crisis ridden. You know, it, it won't be life threatening, but um, you know you'll be you'll be placed in a situation where you've got to make a tricky decision um, under, the, um, under the gaze of the, uh, of the assembled um, instructors and your, and your peers, and that sort of brings the appropriate level of pressure, which is... And that's enough for a person at that particular career level to sort of feel as being stressful, so it kind of... Uh, it's a good um, um, beginning point for the... Uh, for the development of of the ability to sort of uh, step back, calm down, take a few deep breaths, and um, and get on with it, so that a few years later, and in their particular case, it's uh, Duntroon's case, it's important because it might not be too many years later mm. when they are really in a a dangerous uh, situation. They've already had um, the right kind of um, socialisation experiences, which hopefully allow them to to cope with that. Yes, I remember Peter Cosgrove once telling the story of how in his first active engagement uh, in Vietnam, uh, his adjutant was smiling throughout and he said uh, to the man afterwards, why were you smiling? And he said, well, sir, you'd never seen contact with the enemy before and he said, I was just delighted that you behaved as we hoped you would. Uh, many of us had seen contact with the enemy before and we, we simply didn't know what would happen when you were in that, uh, in, in that crucible. Uh, I was just happy that you were, uh, you, you were ready for it. And what a reinforcement that would have been for the young Cosgrove. Huh? Mm, mm. So it's... Um, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's, that's the other thing about that. So you, you are schooled in dealing with these sorts of situations, not simply in your training and education and um, exercises and so forth, but by the way that you are counselled mm. and coached by your senior non-commissioned officers. So the people who are ostensibly um, junior to you, especially in your early career years, they're very important mentors. So um, the... Uh, the experience of, of getting that kind of feedback from uh, from his um, his sergeant would have been immensely, mm. you know, would have embedded that. Yes. He he never would have gone back on that afterwards because, uh, apart from knowing that it worked, uh, he would have uh, because he had the the values instilled in him by by the uh, by his military training. Uh, you know, he he felt. Uh, the obligation to live up to the legacy that uh, that, mm, mm. that that implied. You speak then about uh, the importance of relating to team members, and you uh, quote from the uh, the, the beautiful uh, passage from Shakespeare's Henry V, uh, with chief se cheerful semblance and sweet majesty, that every wretch pining and pale before 
Beholding him plucks comfort from his looks, a largesse universal like the sun. His liberal eye does give to every one, thawing cold fear that mean and gentle all, behold, as may unworthiness define, a little touch of Harry in the night. Yes. How, how do we train leaders to, to, to live up to that ideal uh, of, uh, of, of someone who is there for their troops, uh, engaging at their level but lifting them to a higher plane? Two main ways. Um, the first is uh, informal training. Informal training, not informal training. Well, the other, the other one is, is the informal bit. Um, I'll, I'll deal with that first, um, and that relates back to the back to the previous point about being mentored by your senior NCOs. Um, if you stray from that, for example, um, in his um, forward to the um, to the book, uh, David Morrison tells this lovely sort of self-effacing story about his uh, his platoon sergeant. What a word would you please, sir? <laughs> Close the office door behind him and then delivers a metaphorical kick up the bum uh, and, uh, and a stern admonition as to, as to what the young Morrison had not been doing properly mm. uh, in terms of uh, being the sort of um, the ethical, professional thing to do and, uh, and how he might sort himself out. And so there's that, that informal coaching, that sort of notion that... Uh, uh, if you don't do this, you will be very picked up, very quickly picked up by the people, the senior members of that group whom you you're meant to be uh, uh, facilitating. Um, and then, of course, there is the there is the formal um, training process of uh, of examining historical examples and uh, and or even as I hope uh, will be increasingly the the, the case looking at the psychology and the sociology of team dynamics when, mm. um, when leaders behave in, that, in those ways. So that uh, in the scholarship around servant leadership, which has just emerged in the last decade or so, but which of course has been known in the military for decades, centuries really, um, there is this... Um, the, in, uh, crystal clear findings that uh, leaders who behave like that get better business results. So it's a smart thing to do as well as an ethical thing to do. Um, getting back to uh, sort of um, uh, Peter Cosgrove, um, do you remember the movie Gladiator? Mm. And um, one of the reasons I liked it was that uh, Russell Crowe looks a hell of a lot like the young Peter Crossgrove there. Uh, and the, the first five minutes of the movie is just sheer magic and it sort of goes rapidly downhill from there. But you might recall, uh, listeners might uh, recall the scene where at the, at the very start where the Roman legion is assembling for, for battle against this um, barbarian horde and the, um, and the general... Um, Russell Crowe rides up, hops off his horse and walks along a line of soldiers in order to get to his uh, command point. And when you actually think about this, you can understand that uh, he did this quite deliberately. He didn't ride directly to his command point. He, he got off his horse short of that so he could walk past the soldiers. And as they were going past... They gave him the usual sort of salutes and bows and so forth, but they, their, the body language there was expressed so subtly but to a trained eye, so profoundly, mm. validly, you know, that here was a, a general who was regarded as a brother by the, and they regarded him as a brother and they knew that he regarded them, them as a brother, that he wouldn't let them down because he, he was a leader for them and that he would make uh, decisions in the interests of the mission mm. and the team mm. before his uh, before his own personal uh, welfare. So it's it's looking at cases like that uh, as well. You talked too about uh, another aspect of relating to team members being managing your time well, and give an example of Lieutenant Commander Alpha, who said she devoted much of her working day uh, to people issues and, and left paperwork to after hours. 
How feasible is that in an era in which many of us have as our nominal job title professional email answerer? <laughs> it's tough, isn't it? Uh, and um, look, didn't quite take her literally there because, uh, as you say, there's there's a lot of stuff to, to get through. And not simply answering the emails, of course, but you've got to do some, got to do thinking and uh, looking after and handling your own. Uh, upward and outward uh, responsibilities. But um, if you want your team to function really, really well when it matters, those are the sorts of personal costs that you, mm. you've got to make. Uh, I th you're expecting to work long hours, but the payoff, and it can be sort of... Um, quite costly, especially in a sort of family sense. You can't uh, then devote your time to your family and so forth, where your leadership responsibilities are also important. But the uh, but the payoff for the leader who invests that kind of... Uh, it's uh, it's really... Uh, it's a price beyond pearls. The, um, there is no greater buzz. It, leadership is the, the toughest gig you'll ever have, but it's the, it'll give you the biggest buzz you've ever had to when, when, it's, when it's working well. And you, third, you talk about uh, the importance of running the team so it's rewarding and productive. Mm. Uh, and you tell a number of stories, including a lovely one uh, from your company commander in Vietnam, Major Bill Reynolds, about his unusual suggestion on how to run a clearing patrol. Uh, tell us about that. Uh, it was... Um it was halfway through our tour in Vietnam, and uh, it was a, it was in the middle of the dry season. Uh, we had been out on patrol for a number of days, and uh, everybody was pretty weary. And um, and being in the jungle in Vietnam was really really draining. You know, we were carrying enormous weights on our backs and in our hands, uh, walking through this. Um, um, Plantation for the for the better part of the afternoon, and uh, right at the height of the the summer, as I said, uh, everybody was really knackered. And when we came to the the harbour point, there is a, a drill for what's called harbouring, which is to um, to set up to automatically deploy the the company, which is about a hundred soldiers in three platoons. Um, into a sort of a, a natural defensive position, which can then be fine-tuned later. But first, first of all, you, you everybody in a semi-automatic way can get down on the on the on the on the ground and uh, take up a, a sort of a phase one defensive position. And it requires soldiers to uh, the normal drill is that the uh, each platoon sets down, each section sets down, a platoon has th three sections, and then um, a platoon will send out a, a clearing patrol, mm -hmm. uh, two or three soldiers, for another 100 metres or so, which in Vietnam was well beyond visual range. Often you couldn't see beyond 15 metres, you know, between here and the, and the, and the window. Mm. Um, so you'd have to sort of send out a clearing patrol just to assess the extent to which uh, this was a safe place to, to harbour for the, for the night. Normally that's left to the, the privates. In this particular case, uh, Bill... Um, knowing that everybody would be absolute na as knackered as he was, you know, and he was in his mid to late 30s, God bless him, uh, he said, uh, uh, so we stopped just before we before we got there. He sort of called called a halt and said, right, we're going on to this particular harbour position. Uh, we'll be there in about uh, 20, 20 minutes. We're going to vary the harbouring drill today. Um, today... The clearing patrols will be led by the platoon commanders and me. Uh, and the soldiers can just collapse. We'll go out and for the next for the first half hour we'll look after things. And his doing that, of course, was enormously appreciated. Mm. 
Um, I, do, I do not know how, how they did it. I was so tired. I'd never forgotten how tired I, I was on that particular occasion. You just want to just flop down and do nothing for the next week. <laughs> <laughs> but Bill and his uh, uh, platoon commanders, who, of course, he'd, he'd schooled them in his way of leadership thinking, so uh, even though it took them that extra effort as well, they were, they were quite OK with that. And it was, number one, enormously appreciated by the, by, by the soldiers. It was mm. the absolute demonstration of this sort of servant leadership, service leadership, uh, ethos, and uh, as a secondary, uh, as, a, as a not insignificant bonus, it was a masterclass in leadership for his junior officers. Yes, no doubt they took that particular lesson and applied it very well in the in the years that that followed. You talk at a couple of points in the book about uh, the importance uh, in terms of running an effective uh, military unit of. Uh, dealings with outsiders. Uh, at one point, you talk about the importance of <coughs> standing up against criticism from outsiders. Another, you talk about the importance of passing on the praise of outsiders and publicly honouring those within, within the unit. Do you think we uh, do that enough in non-military organisations? Um, that's an empirical question, isn't it? But it's. Uh, I think there's a... There's a human tendency to uh, to push off criticism. Mm. Oh, look, sorry about that, but it was because that mob over there actually let us down. Yes. Well, you know, my people didn't do their job. I will have a word to them. Um, so the natural t- sort of a human tendency to do that, and there's also a human tendency to say, oh, I'm glad you think so, uh, CEO. I'm, I appreciate your your praise of me, or words to that effect. Uh, I think that once um, the, the unwisdom of... Perhaps I'm being naive, but I, I'd have thought that uh, once the unwisdom of, of doing that is pointed out to people, and especially, again, as the sort of business benefits of... Uh, of um, taking criticism on yourself uh, and giving the credit, but giving the credit to the team mm. rather than one's oneself. Once those benefits are, are known, you'd you'd hope that uh, it would become a more um, a more widespread practice. Mm. Mm. And I'm sure I'm sure out there, there are any business executives who are listening at the moment, clenching their teeth and saying, "Yeah, we bloody do that." <laughs> I'm sure you do. Good on you. I mean, there is in the military a very smooth system of, of leadership training. Uh, people move through ranks and there's an, an established notion within each rank as to what the appropriate level of leadership training would, should be. Um, how transferable is that to, say, a corporate setting where people are uh, jumping around on a much more ad hoc mm. basis between organisations of different size uh, and different, quite, quite different roles within that organisation? That's that's a real. It's a real challenge uh, when you've got um, a corporate situation, which which is 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 like that. You know, you uh, that kind of um, starting early and schooling people gradually uh, strategy is um, seems to be really feas- feasible only in uh, organisations which where people are fairly stable. You know, mm. where you can guarantee. Guarantee, quote unquote, the uh, that uh, a person A, whom you're schooling today, is going to be uh, going to be with you in uh, ten years' time for that uh, that to pay off. So I, you know, you one sympathises with um, companies that um, where that doesn't seem to be possible and sort of seems to be a waste of money. On the other hand, um, the uh, the idea of doing that. Um, it has its uh, it has its immediate payoffs, almost immediate payoffs. In that, uh, if you are doing that, uh, it is generally uh, a real motivator for people to to hang around. You know, if mm. they feel that their that their career development is being looked after, uh, and where they are being trusted, they are being thought of sufficiently for the company to be making this investment for them. Those are the companies that people. Um, if they don't want to stay with them, at least 
they will be inclined to come back to them afterwards. So mm. Mm. Um, there are a couple of sort of famous companies, uh, the names of it, which escape me at the moment, but uh, um, where they they actually they bring they bring young people in and then they encourage them to go out and get some sort of cross uh, fertilisation, uh, always with the uh, implicit or explicit um, no idea that. Um, They'll be they'll be welcome back, and um, that uh, especially if they've got this cross cross uh, cross uh, fertilisation. The other thing about that, Andrew, um, is it's darn hard to develop the kind of leadership qualities that people need for the upper echelons unless you do begin early, mm, mm. because if you, as m many companies do. Uh, if you leave leadership development too late, you are not only delaying the if, the um, nurturing of a very subtle but vital skill set, um, you are delaying the sense, uh, the sense of identity that, that goes with the leader, you know, that sense mm. of... Uh, I am a leader and therefore this is how I ought to behave. It's a different mindset to that of ma management or yes. uh, or uh, supervision. And um, and and especially if you uh, if you if you don't start early, if you uh, sort of uh, tap people on the shoulder just as they're about to sort of enter um, um, those upper upper levels of uh, leadership and sort of send them off on an exec executive MBA and a few uh, leadership courses and so forth and and hope that that's going to work. Sorry, but uh, it's not because mm. it's um, it's way too late. If only because um, so well there there are two main reasons. First of all, uh, already talked about the uh, um, the importance of developing those subtle skills and that way of thinking about oneself, which which don't come quickly. Um, but the uh, but the other thing is that uh, um, uh, in the early stages of one's leadership career, one's going to make mistakes, mm. and you want to uh, allow the embryo leader to make the mistakes at an organisational level where it doesn't matter so much, uh, rather than leaving it till they get to a, a senior right. career stage where every mistake is serious. And the military is interesting uh, in a number of respects compared to civilian organisations. It's not trying to make a profit and it has the comparative luxury of being able to spend most of its time training its staff, which is uh, uh, not the way in which uh, most of corporate Australia works. Mm. Uh, what do you think are the most transferable aspects uh, of, of army leadership? Um, there are several. Uh, the first is a way of thinking about yourself and the others are particular um, decision-making and communication skills, um, ways of thinking about yourself. One of the, uh, the, the great, uh, one of the most valuable sources of information uh, that we got for writing the book was to, to talk to f former National Service officers um, who sort of uh, 40 years or so on from their experience in the Vietnam years, you know, they'd, uh, they'd served for two years and then they'd gone back to their, their civilian trade. <clears throat> the number of them to whom we talked uh, who declared that um, they wouldn't be where they are now had it not been for those formative early years when they had learned not so much good decision-making skills, but, mm. but because they did, and good sort of useful uh, communication skills, but they had learned that servant way of thinking, that um, team first, mission first, team first way of, way of thinking. And um, coupled with the expectation that uh, uh, in a... In an ambiguous uh, situation, it's much better to do something than stand around and admire the problem. So that um, many of them uh, took 
that particular way of thinking, which had been embedded into them uh, during their uh, years in their sh two short years in uniform, took that way of thinking back into their corporate life and uh, really made successes themselves as a, a consequence. And the other, um, the other useful thing was that sort of that skill set uh, of sort of uh, what is called the military appreciation process, the way of um, thinking about a problem that begins with a careful enunciation of what the problem is uh, before you begin to sort of leap into a leap into a situation, a, a, a solution for it. Mm. Um, and the sort of uh, one of the principles of the military appreciation. Um, process is that because problems aren't always what they seem, um, if you've got an hour to think about and come up with a plan to solve a problem, spend the first 20 minutes really clarifying what that problem is. Because mm, mm. if you leap straight into it and uh, go on being all very decisive, um, there's not an uh, not an improbable uh, chance that you will uh, you will be tackling the wrong the, the wrong problem. So this way of making decisions and coming up with plans is then coupled with a communications protocol called SMEAC, S M E A C, which is that you uh, you you then give your instructions or your orders for mm. for dealing with the with the problem in a particular situation situation execution a uh, situation mission execution administration command command and control right. command and uh, command and communications so that you you always begin you you never sort of say this is what we are going to do you begin saying this is the situation. Yes. yes. So that, um, and therefore, this is this is what we what we what we're going to do, and that's immensely valuable, not just for helping you to sort of frame the the detailed plan, or what how you expect your subordinates to come up with their detailed plan, but it also uh, it uh, it tunes them into the sorts of actions that they're going to be doing. So they already know why they will be doing things because you've sketched out the situation. And um, then the execution is is how you're going to do it and you always begin with an overall picture. Right, the broad picture is um, first we're going there and then and then we're going there. Now, here's, here's the detail. We get to point A by doing this, this, this. Yes. Then we get to point B by doing this, this, this. By the way, if something goes wrong between... Here and A, this is what we. This is what how we will sort of frame our contingency, mm. and and so on. So you're trying to think of all of uh, sort of uh, various uh, contingencies that might happen. But uh, there's uh, an old axiom that uh, a plan, uh, an operation never survives um, the first shot, and uh, or words of that effect, mm. and. Um, and therefore, uh, it's probably going to have need to be adapted along along the way. And therefore, everybody is always is always thinking about, well, if such and such happens, how I might how might I handle that? And I reckon that'd be useful in a business uh, or a, a public service environment too, mm, mm. because um, many of them these days, you know, they're subject to disruptive technologies, um, competition from uh, unexpected quarters. Uh, difficulties that unexpectedly uh, arise, they're, they're subject to a lot of um, VUCA environment as well. So um, they, they could benefit from thinking along those lines, I think. As, as my uh, young national, formerly young na national service uh, research subjects found that they did. Yes. You talk in the book about a former soldier who uh, got caught up in uh, the banditos and ended up running their drug distribution network. Mm. And uh, you point out that while some people said uh, he'd done it 
despite his military background, you thought perhaps he'd uh, managed to put his uh, military skills to uh, uh, ill effect in, uh, in uh, keeping a, a team going in a challenging environment and uh, uh, ensuring that he was appropriately representing the behaviours they expected of a Bandito's leader, relating to team members, running the team so it was productive and rewarding. Um, does that story suggest that there isn't anything inherently ethical about the framework of, of army leadership? Uh, no, it doesn't. Um, quite the opposite, actually. Uh, first of all, um, what, this, what this fellow was doing and what the, um, what the commentators were saying, well, his command and control style, by which they meant authoritarian, his uh, authoritarian style would suit a group like a motorcycle gang. So they attributed his uh, success to his authoritarianism, whereas the opposite was probably the hmm. probably the case. You know, he might have been off, coming back to the authoritative. Um, uh, he wouldn't have been sort of bossy and directive. You know, he would have he having been schooled in a particular way of thinking about leadership. He would have coached his bandido team members uh, into what what they should do and then sort of progressively delegated tasks to them mm. if that was appropriate and if that's what they 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 wanted but um, I think the more sort of fundamental uh, issue behind your question is um, we are told that uh, ethical leadership is very important and it is but Ethics are in the, the eye of a beholder and what is ethical to a criminal gang is not ethical to people like you and me. Um, what's ethical to a criminal gang is, is the pursuit of self-interest or the pursuit of the interest of the, of, of the team, uh, loyalty, toughness and so forth. So what the banditos expect from their leaders is different to what... Um, to what the um, what the army expects of, of theirs, and what the uh, people in the managers in BHP expect in, in mm. theirs, but uh, but the principles uh, remain the same. That uh, you uh, you are more guided uh, in each particular case. Ethics depends on the values of that particular institution, and the, you would expect that the values of a a criminal gang would uh, would vary than uh, vary to those of a um, of a, a you know a normal civilian organisation, but uh, the the same kind of uh, um, rules apply there. If you if you if you don't lead according to the the values of that group, then you won't be recognised as a leader. Nick, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Ah. <clears throat> It's uh, similar to um, a lot of what I've heard on your podcast, Andrew, and, uh, and that is uh, identify, take time, young teenage Nick, to identify what it is that you really want to do mm. uh, and, and then do that. And if, if it takes time to, do, to, uh, to make that identification, and it probably will because the world's a big place, the scope of study is vast, you know, there's the arts and the sciences and, and, the, and the trades, and then you just, even then, sort of divide themselves into all sorts of families. So start with a broad perspective, um, tackle a generalist kind of educational uh, menu first, and tune into the ones that you really mm. have an affinity for and then focus, go for, go for your hardest on, on those. Um, now, I really feel strongly about that because you know, it wasn't what happened to me. I got channelled into a field of study that I, I didn't enjoy doing and when um, a decade or so later I discovered the social sciences, first of all through economics and then through occupational psychology, I just loved it. I, I changed from a from person who had to be flogged to his desk mm -hmm. a week before the exam started in order that he could sort of uh, learn just enough to to get to get a pass, through a person who 
who read obsessively and had to be dragged away from that desk. <laughs> <laughs> and that, as you say, um, uh, it's um, you then put yourself in a situation where you, if you're doing what you love, you'll never work again. Mm. Choose easy, work hard. Yeah. Uh, what's something you used to believe but no longer do? Uh, this is something I'm rather ashamed to admit in public, but uh, I think it applies to many uh, people from my generation. Um, the kind of misogyny that uh, was endemic within the young male culture of the of the 1950s, that belief that uh, the world was run by men and women was there simply to provide support. Uh, women couldn't make any uh, contributions. I remember to my shame, it's interesting that I still remember vividly making these sort of stupid statements um, about how... Um, sort of how men should be left to get on with things and, and women should be in those uh, support roles. I've come almost 180 degrees since then, especially, and not least because um, I've been uh, influenced by uh, some very impressive women and also because I'm now aware of the of the literature in um, terms of uh, leadership, for example, isn't it that um, women actually have a, a leadership edge? Um, women tend to lead differently to men, and it tends to be of a style that actually gets better business outcomes in the end. So it's useful for men to to learn from from women. Now, of course, we've we've moved on from that that era, thank God, um, but. Um, I think there are a few men of my generation who haven't moved on, but I certainly have, I hope. <laughs> when are you most happy? Oh, well, I'm most happy when I'm spending time with my family, you know, just kicking around. And uh, a lot of people say that, don't they? Because it's uh, you know, one of these fundamental human needs. You know, we're spending time with the, the people that you love, uh, my wife, whom I adore and respect like Billio, and uh, with my children, who uh, children and grandchildren, who turned out to be terrific people. So, so it's a sort of a, a double benefit in that particular case because I can um, look at the sorts of good people that they've become and um, take a, a modicum of credit for it. <laughs> What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? I uh, I read a lot. I listen to uh, very interesting podcasts. Um, you know, my uh, my podcast fare is sort of they're all kind of things that you generate. They're sort of things that make you think mm. rather than things simply to while away the time. And on the physical side, I, I stay fit. I, I ride my bike almost every day. Um, of necessity, when I'm in Marysville, I have to do a lot of gardening. And, um, you know, I was... And in that particular respect, I was really lucky in that I grew up in a, genera in, grew up in a generation which had um, just discovering the, the utility of exercise. So I was already sort of running on a daily basis when the rest of my peer group in Civilian Street was sort of still sitting around their offices eating um, sandwiches at lunchtime. Mm, mm. Nowadays, of course, you uh, uh, here in Canberra, you sort of get bowled over by the by the traffic around the the jogging traffic around the lake at lunchtime. I, it's fabulous. Yes, yes. but uh, forty years ago, thirty years ago. Um, there weren't too many of us. Yes. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Oh, I have the like a glass of red or three in the evening. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Nick, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Ah, well, I was alluding to this uh, two or three minutes ago. It's my wife. She is the most amazing person. Um, she is um, she is talented. She is uh, got a razor sharp mind, but a very kind, considerate, tactful, polite person. Uh, she 
goes out of her way to help others and to help me. She coaches me in all sorts of subtle and unsubtle ways, not afraid to kick me up the bum when I, when I need it, which is at least once a week. <laughs> but, uh, um, and one of the um, useful things about writing this book was that uh, all I had to do was to, to sort of validate a particular principle that I was in, deriving from the, from the literature or from the various cases um, of leadership uh, was just to look at what Judy ha- happened to be doing and how she was able to influence me just to confirm, yeah, smart thing to do. So, Judy... Oh, most of it to you, my darling. Nick Jans, Army veteran and leadership expert, thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Uh, it's, it's an honour to be a member of the, the hugely impressive pantheon which you've managed to assemble <laughs> across the last few months, Andrew. But, uh, I feel humbled by it. Thanks. Thank you again. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback. So please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.